All right, we are tracking through here just to kind of remind you where uh, we've been and where we're headed. So we laid the foundation from Isaiah 43 that all of God's children go through difficult times. That God also promises to be with us when we pass through the waters. So difficult times come to everyone, but God will be with us in those times. Then we kind of define terms, fear, anxiety, and depression. And we said that depression is a form of what? Uh, well, it might be a form of sin, but it's broadly a form of suffering. Suffering. And so the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about depression, but it has a lot to say about suffering. And so the ultimate cause of suffering is sin, but the immediate cause, or why we, we experience it, is complex, a little bit uh, more difficult. And so then we spent a couple of weeks learning how to diagnose fear, anxiety, and depression. We said that one difficulty of diagnosing it is that diagnosing it isn't what? It's not the cure. So to, to know that you have it is not the same as being able to, to get help. And so we, uh, we kind of close by saying this, that uh, the connection between shame and depression, sinful shame, says that we have to cleanse ourselves, that we must do something. And yet the gospel says that Jesus uh, bore our shame and that there is nothing that we can do uh, to make ourselves more acceptable in the sight of God. And so it's kind of this foundation that we want to start with, that in each of us there's this kind of need for self-justification, self-cleansing, but the gospel says that it's something that God does for us. And now we're going to dive into what it looks like to treat uh, fear, anxiety, and depression. So we've defined it, we work to understand how to diagnose it, now we're going to talk about uh, treating it. And I will admit that we're getting into a little bit of a minefield here. And at the end, hopefully, I won't blow myself up. And uh, the par- part of the minefield is, one, it's, it's difficult to work through because it's complex, as we've already noted. Secondly, there are a lot of thoughts behind how, how we should approach it. At the, at the one end of the spectrum is an approach that sees uh, depression as something that you should only approach medically. So you treat it with medicine. At the other end of the spectrum is uh, something that sees it only as a spiritual problem, and so you kind of get the, the drug treatment, and you've got the no drug treatment, and kind of everything in between. And so the, the, the question is, when someone says they're anxious or depressed, you know, how do you fix it or make it go away? And so kind of one school of thought is that you uh, medicate it, <clears throat> that'll fix the problem, make it go away. And at the other end is that you can't treat it with medication. So you've got one group that says this is the way to do it, and the other group that says this is not not only not the way to do it, it's not a way that you should do it. <clears throat> so you can attempt to apply medicine to a problem, but, you're, but if, you, if you apply medicine to a spiritual problem, then you're only kind of cementing that problem. You're kind of making it worse. It's a, it's a little bit like seeing a disobedient child, and rather than addressing the child's behavior, their disobedience, you sedate the child and make him comatose. And in making him comatose, you kind of fix the behavior problem, but you don't really help the child. You actually just sedate the child rather than disciplining the child. So if you sedate a child rather than training or disciplining the child, you could actually harm the child uh, by not helping him through his behavior pattern. And uh, the, the idea is that you can do the same thing in terms of depression uh, with anyone. And so you've got kind of different schools of thought. So this are ends of the spectrum, and we're going to talk about those and kind of a number of things in between. But there is a major challenge that we face here. And the challenge is what we'll call a secular worldview. And that's the idea that you can live life uh, without God. So our world today insists 
uh, that we live life without acknowledging the existence of God. And even if we acknowledge the possibility that God exists, we certainly don't acknowledge the authority of God. And so in a world that doesn't acknowledge the existence of God, let alone the authority of God, it's difficult to have a conversation about deep mental or emotional problems uh, because then if you can't acknowledge God, the only solution you can have cannot be spiritual because if God doesn't exist, then we can't address it uh, this way. And yet we know that humans are spiritual beings. So kind of the, the rules of engagement, not, not here in the church, but in the world we live in, all right, we can talk medicine, we can talk therapy, we can talk psychology, but we can't use the S word, sin. It wasn't the S word you thought of. See, it's, it's, it's sin is, you know, is a four-letter word in our culture, and we can't acknowledge our brokenness and our need for a Savior. So we have to start from a place where we say that any solution that comes from a worldview that doesn't acknowledge the authority of God, or that does acknowledge our need of Jesus, and it doesn't acknowledge our greatest problem is sin, at one level, we can't, we can't holistically address this problem. And so we believe as Christians, we're equipped to address this in a different way than the world is because we acknowledge that our greatest problem is sin, and our greatest need is of a Savior, and that our hope ultimately lies in Him. So this makes uh, working through treatment a little bit more complicated. Um, However, that being said, so we, I think that's necessary a necessary part of addressing this. At the same time, it's possible to always say, to, ra- to overreact to this by making every issue a sin issue. Uh, kind of like uh, the, the people who asked Jesus, you know, who sinned? This man or his parents said he was born blind. It's like, it's like, what sin is causing this problem in your life? And so we can kind of fall off a cliff on either side. So mental, physical, or psychological illness is a real thing. And so, at one end of the spectrum is a group that denies medical treatment for medical problems, <clears throat> and, uh, and some, some, some people even deny that for obvious medical problems, not even emotional or psychological um, problems, allowing treatment only by prayer for healing. So, we've got, we've got, we've got a challenge here, we're going to try to walk through this in a way that is uh, scripturally informed, but talk about how we can battle fear, anxiety, and uh, depression. I'm going to talk for a, a little bit here about... The target. What, in, other, in other words, what, what are we aiming at when we talk about addressing this? And to do this, I'm going to tell you a story about when I was four years old. When <clears throat> my family lived, uh, I, was, I was born in one house, and then I was raised until second grade uh, in the city of Greenville. So if, if you know the upstate at all, it's right off of East North Street, right in the center of town. And uh, right by our house, there was this giant hill. Now, I got to admit, I've been back and seen this hill as an adult. It was tiny, but it felt giant at four years old. So, I, so there was this giant hill, and my goal was to take my tricycle and make it down this hill on my tricycle. Well, if you know anything about three-wheel vehicles, they're not particularly stable. And so I started at the top of this hill, and I did not make it all the way down. I made it about halfway down. The trike tipped over, and as I remember it, I don't know how much of my body was bloody and scraped up, but it felt like my entire body was just covered in cuts after I, I hit the asphalt and kind of slid down the remainder of this hill. So I was probably going about three miles an hour, only slid two feet, but it felt at the time like I was going 40 miles an hour and slid 40 feet. Uh, so that night, uh, right near our house, there was a pizza hut there, and I can remember we, it was close enough that we could walk or ride our bikes there, and we went there, and I, can, I could not enjoy the meal because I was in so much pain. I felt like my whole body was just covered in scrapes, 
And so I sat down, and I can remember, you know, I was four years old when this happened, and I can remember to this day uh, the amount of pain that I felt <clears throat> having crashed my bike down this giant hill. Well, in that moment, what is it that I actually want? So I'm, I'm, I've, I'm scraped up. I've, I've crashed my tricycle. What, what do I want at that moment? I, healing is ultimate, but that's not the first thing. Pain. Pain, right? I just want to deal with the pain. What can I do to make the pain go away? And even though I love pizza, pizza doesn't make the pain go away. So it doesn't matter how good I feel about that meal in that moment, all I want is the pain to go away. So healing is what I really need, but all I can feel is I want this pain gone. And so whatever I can do to make this pain go away. So when we experience pain, our first tendency isn't to think ultimately about true healing. It's to think about what? How can I make this feeling go away? So our first thought is, what can I do to take what I'm experiencing right now, what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, and just make it go away? It's why that if you simply come up with a list of pain relievers, uh, let's, let's do this. Tell me a pain reliever, just an over-the-counter generic pain reliever. Tylenol, ibuprofen, Aleve, what else? I mean, et cetera. You, you can come up with a list, and we, we can do this, right. Because our society spends a lot of money making pain go away. Uh, in fact, this weekend, I'm, I'm, I'm battling a little bit of a cold. Now, my wife is <coughs> very careful in terms of uh, measuring medication and, and making sure it's always the right amounts. I'm kind of like, yeah, I'll ballpark it. You know, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll just, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't think through it that clearly. And um, so I was taking some, uh, like, a DayQuil knockoff. And then I was like, you know what? I think I'll take a Tylenol, too. And Liz is like, no, you can't take a Tylenol. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, doesn't that have acetaminophen? And I'm like, oh, it does. Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, I can't do that. And so, and so at some level, we can get a, get a pain relief and cold relief at the same time. Well, in a world that, that does anything it can to make these pain relievers go away, and, and then the nice thing is we've got variations of those pain. You've got the, the daytime and the nighttime, Tylenol AM and Tylenol PM. The normal strength and the extra strength, the average and the severe, children's Motrin, adult Motrin, infant Tylenol. You can buy any variety of pain reliever that you want. So what are we really, really good at in our culture? Managing pain, managing the symptoms, addressing how we feel, but not necessarily addressing the underlying causes. And there's a lot of money, time, and research invested in the pain management industry. In fact, if you <clears throat> spend any time watching any amount, any show, uh, any sporting event, at some point you will see something to manage pain. In fact, we've got former athletes who, who tell us how to manage pain in their old age. So when it comes to any problem, including anxiety and depression, our first question is not typically, what can I do to address the underlying cause? It is what? How to make the pain go away. In fact, if you get admitted to the hospital, the first thing they might do is begin managing your pain. They might not know how to heal you, but we can sedate the pain. We can make the pain go away. What can I do to end this terrible feeling? That might be why our minds are tempted to run to something extreme like suicide. Will suicide fix the problem? No, but in our minds, it'll do what? It'll make the pain. It'll make the feeling go away. Because what's the greatest good in that moment? Ending the pain. And if ending the pain is the greatest good that we can imagine, we do whatever we can to end that pain. So there is some truth in this. There's truth 
in the, in the idea that you manage pain. And, and if you don't believe this is true, just imagine that you live in 1863 and it's time to amputate an arm that was shot by a musket ball. And you have no pain reliever, right? So if, if, if the musket ball or the amputation doesn't kill you, what might? The pain. Pain literally can kill you. Okay, so, so at one level, it's, it's a good thing to manage pain. So if you're in the hospital for an illness, the doctors have to manage your pain because it can drive you insane or kill you. So it, it is important that we control pain. So we're not saying that's unimportant. That is important. However, that can't be the ultimate target. Controlling pain in and of itself can't become the end game. Why? Because it's possible to control the pain, to medicate the pain without addressing the underlying issues, and we've never found a cure. We've never actually addressed the problem. So the target can't be managing pain in itself. And so let's go to our, our brother, the Apostle Paul, and see if he's got any help for us here. So to truly address depression, we've got to understand what our target is. Naturally, our target is going to be what? Make it go away. Address the pain. But to dig into it a bit further, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 here. So Paul here is talking about an experience that he has. And he says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the thorn was given me in the flesh. So what he's saying here is, I got more revelation from God than the rest of you, which naturally makes me proud. But since I'm naturally conceited, God has given me something uh, to humble me. A thorn, he says, was given me in the flesh. Now, a, a number of people have different theories about what this thorn is. Some people suspect that it was blindness because later on in his life, he talks about writing with a large hand or having other people uh, write for him. So maybe he was going blind. I actually have a different theory. We're going to walk through that, acknowledging that it's just a theory. So he's a thorn, but he also calls it a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So what is this? Uh, so this thorn in the flesh, he calls it a messenger from Satan, but it's also doing something good, isn't it? It's keeping him from becoming conceited. It's keeping him from becoming proud. Okay, so you've got something painful, something difficult, something bad, thorn in the flesh, messenger from Satan, but it's producing humility in him. Verse 8, it's painful. So three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Did it leave? It did not. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So what's the greatest good that Paul can experience? Is it that the pain leaves? No. It's that he experiences grace. God's grace in the midst of his weakness. Therefore, he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, again, we don't know what Paul's particular issue is here. Is Paul sadistic? He might sound like it, but he's actually not. Why is it that he is content? Is he content because he, like, is he happy with the pain he's experiencing? Why is he happy? Because of Because he's experiencing strength. He's experiencing grace that is not his own. He's experiencing something extrinsic, extrinsic, external to him that is more valuable than what lies in him. 
the grace he experiences is more valuable to him than his natural ability, than his natural strength. So he says, I am content with weaknesses for the sake of Christ. So he knows that in this moment he experiences something that he couldn't experience apart from weakness. And perhaps you've had an experience like this, either a a physical weakness that you've experienced, uh, a loss or something like that. And there's a part of you that that would never, never wish to experience that. You'd never wish to to lose that loved one. You'd never wish to experience pain like that. But in that, you also experience something that you haven't experienced at other times in your life, which is an infusion of grace that isn't naturally yours. And God has this thing, I I jokingly say, but it's not really joking, and I, I try to say it really kindly to people, God must love you an awful lot to take you through this to teach you how much you need him. And there's truth in that. That God just sometimes, he, he rips everything away from us to show us our need of him. And in doing that, it's actually God's grace to us. Because we're like Paul, we become conceited. And then God rips the, kind of the, our, our crutches away and shows us how much we need Christ. So we don't know what Paul's particular issue is. But I don't know why it couldn't be depression. And I'm going to kind of show you why I think it might be that. So this, this passage in 2 Corinthians 12 is more well-known because there's kind of this, this equation, this inverted equation. So in place of weakness, if we are weak, then we're strong because the strength of Christ makes us strong. We're not strong in ourselves. We're not inherently strong, but God gives us strength. But there's a, another lesson or a kind of introduction to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So this precedes what comes in chapter 12. So again, I just, I just want to note, this isn't a, uh, it's, it's not a separate discussion, it's, it's part of the same discussion before what we just read. So Paul talks about his experience in life. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Sounds like a hard life, doesn't it? In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's a long list of really hard things. Beating imprisonment, being tricked by false brothers, kind of people posturing themselves as Christians to to trap Paul, uh, hunger, Exposure to the elements, then in verse 28. And apart from me, now all these other things, they are inherently bad. But verse 28, he, he adds another category. He says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to fall and I am not indignant. So I don't know what, what level... Anxiety plays into Paul's experience here, but it's significant. And so he's saying, man, he, he kind of lists all these bad, th- I mean, to be shipwrecked, okay, that's bad. To be in prison, that's bad. To be hungry, that's bad. To be cold and exposed to the elements, that's bad. But to care for the churches, that's good. But Paul says it produces what in him? Anxiety because of all the pressure, all the stress that he feels. So, We said there's a lesson here from Paul. So what is the lesson? Paul, on the one hand, prays for God to take away the pain. 
doesn't he? In fact, in chapter 12, he says he prayed how many times? Three times. And did God take away the pain? God did not take away the pain. So we don't really know what it is. So I'm not, I'm not, kind of, I'm not overstating my case as in, like, I've got it figured out. I'm just saying, I think at some level, it might be some level anxiety that he is experiencing that's, that's beyond what the average person has experienced because of his experience in life, as well as his level of responsibility. So Paul says it's a good thing, it's okay to pray for God to take away the pain. It's a good thing to do. But at the same time, he also tells us something important. So remember, our conversation here is about the target. And our target is what? It's this. God, would you take away the pain? Well, Paul says that, that's fine. That's a good thing to pray, and that's a good thing to want for God to take away that pain. But that is not the end game. In other words, that's not the ultimate goal. That's not the ultimate target. The end game isn't that the pain goes away. The target for the Christian going through a difficult time is not merely that we ask God to take away the pain. It's that we learn to trust Christ in the midst of pain no matter what. So you see the difference. Paul's not saying wish for, you know, pray for pain. Bring it on. That's not what he's saying. He is saying Pray for God to remove the pain. But the most important thing is that you learn to trust Christ in the midst of pain. You see, the Christian life is a walk of faith. Our goal is to trust Christ, even in the middle of pain. So, of course, feel free to ask God to take away the pain. Ask God to change your circumstance. Ask God to change your marriage. Ask God to, 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 to give you marriage if you want marriage. And that's, that's what's causing the pain. Ask God to take away the physical trial. Ask God to wa- take away your desire for, for uh, something that just draws you like, like a, 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 a bug to a light, that's some addiction that you're, you're... Ask God to take away that desire. But also do that with a view toward that's not the end goal. Your end goal is to trust God's goodness and God's sovereignty no matter what. So in a battle of fear, anxiety, and depression, the biggest goal is to trust God not to remove the pain. Now, i got to admit, it's a lot easier to teach this than it is to experientially believe this and live this. It's a lot easier to let these words come out of my mouth than to experience pain and be like, God, thank you. I know this is a good gift from you. Like that's, that's just not, not the way my mind works. God, I trust you, no big deal. That, that's not the way it works in that moment, is it? Because it's very difficult. The biggest goal is to trust God not to remove, to, not to remove the pain. So after all, what will shine God's light more clearly? Someone talking about how good God is when their barns are full, they got plenty to eat, food's on the table, and everything's good. Or someone who talks about their dependence on the Lord and God's goodness when their barns are empty, their kids are hungry, and life's really hard. What displays the Christian faith more clearly? Someone who trusts in the goodness of God when, to use Paul's words, he's in toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, without food, in cold and exposure. It's been quite a while since I've read this book, but it's, I, I love the title for one of Jerry Bridges' books. It's Trusting God, but then the subtitle is Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. And that's really the target here. 
is to trust God even when life hurts. Or we might say it this way, trusting God especially when life hurts. So for the Christian, our, our primary goal in pain is to trust God not to make the pain go away. So it's taking our target, which is in that moment we feel like, okay, God, take this pain away, change my circumstances, change my experience. That's an okay thing to pray. In fact, I think Paul at some level says it's even a good thing to pray. But that's not an ultimate thing to hope for. That's not where our faith ultimately should be. Ultimately, God, would you take this away, but help me to trust you no matter what. Help me to trust you whether you take this away or not. So let's talk a little bit about trusting versus coping. So is pain relief bad? No, it's really good, okay? So, so pain relief isn't bad. There's no trick question here. It's, it's not bad. It's why in heaven there is no pain. There, there's no grief. There's no cry. Because there's, there's no sickness. Because in heaven there's nothing bad. It's good. Okay, so there's, there's no, no pain. But we don't just want to learn to cope. So, so that, that's a good thing. We don't want to learn to cope. Ultimately, we want to learn to trust God in the midst of pain. So if, 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 we, if today all we do is kind of lessen our pain to where we can cope, is that okay? Yeah, that, that, that's not a bad thing to just be able to function. But that's not the end game. That's probably an okay goal for today. But if that's where we are forever, then we're missing the joy of what it means to trust God even when life hurts. So if you're going through a very painful circumstance, is it okay to figure out how to cope with that pain? Yeah, okay. If you enter the hospital and... You've got a gaping wound. Is it okay for the doctor to manage your pain to where you can survive that experience? Yes. If all the doctor does is manage your pain and never address the gaping wound in your chest, is he really helping you? Not ultimately. So that's a step in a process. It's not the end goal in the process. If that's where we are forever... Then, then, then we're not ultimately getting to the end goal. And really, at some level, this is the story of saints, the church, throughout history. So Hebrews 11, what we sometimes call the hall of faith. So it's a record of people throughout history, throughout the Old Testament primarily there, but people who have trusted, trusted God. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. So we don't sadistically seek pain. In other words, like the point here is not that we do whatever we can to hurt. But we do ask God for grace to trust him even in the midst of pain. And if we learn to do this, if we learn to trust God in the midst of pain, pain, instead of being the enemy, can become a driving force in our worship. You ever have this experience where you're going through a tough time, and in that time, the words seem sweeter? 
the Spirit of God is more present. The relationships in the body of Christ, you're more aware of what a gift they are. When God, when God speaks, when you hear the word, he's, he's speaking to you. Well, is his word different? Nah. Is God suddenly you know, shouting with a loud voice? No, it's, it's our experience, our pain makes us more tender, more open to the work of God in our life. So pain becomes a driving motivator for us in worship, in our dependence on God. So if we persevere in faith through the trial, it moves us from pain relief to heartfelt worship. In fact, if you think about uh, observing the cross, and on that day, Jesus dies, he's going through unimaginable pain, physical torture, bearing the wrath of God against sin. But there's a Roman soldier there, and he sees this experience, and he sees how Jesus experienced pain, and he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. He, he sees him for who he is. Pain can drive us to worship, can drive us to prayer. It drives us to the community of faith. In other words, we have this tendency. Life's good. We're competent. All our needs are met. We feel confident. We're attacking life. It's not attacking us. What's our prayer life like then? Even if it exists, it's pretty small. It's diminutive. Or even if we spend the amount of time, we're not, we're not crying. It's not just a cry to God. But if you experience pain, you experience neediness, you experience desperation, then what? Then you're really crying out to God to hear you. You're really depending on God. So we recognize, before we talk about different types of treatment, which we're going to do in a few moments, that the end game is that we trust God even when life hurts. So that in the words of the Apostle Paul, the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, he says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. It's not for the sake of those things. It's not for the sake of those circumstances. For the sake of Christ. And so it drives him to dependence. And uh, perhaps you, you've seen this. I remember... Um, different experiences in my life where I've experienced pain, and, and, and there's a part of me that never wants to go back there. There's also a part of me that, that misses the grace of God that I experienced in that moment. And, uh, you know, I, the, the Christian life is just, it's like it's baby steps, taking baby steps forward, but there are times when God's grace just kind of carries you forward in faith in ways that you don't experience ordinarily. And a lot of times that comes in very difficult, painful circumstances. And so uh, in terms of the target, what we want to do is kind of shift the target from mere pain relief. Pain relief is not a bad thing. But what we want is true help. So there's a difference between pain relief in the midst of depression and true help for depression. In other words, pain relief may be an important part of the treatment process, but it's never the end game. So pain relief can be an important part of what you're doing, but it's not the ultimate goal. It's like this dude's coming to the hospital, we got to stop his bleeding, but it's not the true final solution. I mean, <laughs> imagine this, that uh, you break your arm and you go to the doctor and you need the doctor to set and address your broken arm. 
You walk in there, and you know, as far as you know, all you've got is a broken arm. You walk into the doctor, and he immediately begins talking about end-of-life care. Like, okay, we're just going to do whatever we can to make you comfortable, to make, make these last days okay, you know, to, 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 so you can die with dignity. And you're kind of like, I got broken. I, I, I didn't know it was that serious. Like, I got a broken arm here, and we're talking about making me comfortable, like terminal care. See, it, it wouldn't make sense. I mean, if you've got terminal cancer, okay, maybe we're having a different conversation, but I thought I had a broken arm. Now, the difficulty is that we often feel like we're terminal when we're depressed. We get a broken arm and we feel like, oh, man, it's like pain so I could die. It ain't really, but you feel like it is in that moment. We feel like we're terminal, but we're not. What we need is temporary pain relief on the way to true help, on the way to long-term help. So it's not that we discount relief, but it's not the true end game. In other words, if you walk in with a broken arm and the doctor decides to treat you with pain relief for the rest of your life, and you don't feel the pain of your broken arm, but you can't use it, is that good? No, that's not good. That's, I mean, that's, that's not the ultimate goal. Ultimately, you want to be able to treat, that, treat the actual problem. And so if all we do, if we're struggling with anxiety or we're struggling with depression, is, is, is treat the broken arm with pain relief, but we never actually are able to use that, that part of ourselves, Ultimately, perhaps, we're not, we're not accomplishing the good that we want to. So we often feel like we're terminal when we're depressed, but we're not actually terminal. So uh, with, with that groundwork laid, we're going to talk about some different models for treating depression. And one difficulty here is that there are real physical, mental, and psychological problems that are also associated with fear, anxiety, and depression. And uh, in case you haven't noticed, I'm not, I'm not an MD. Uh, nor am I a psychologist. At the same time, um, before we say, well, they got, they got all the, the credentials, they also aren't experts in soul care. So it's not like, you know, it, it's, it's not one side or the other. And no pastor really is an expert, but the preparation to become a pastor is comparable in terms of study, academic preparation, and real-life clinicals, etc. So in the midst of every trial... There are times where we may need professional medical help. There are also times when we need uh, spiritual counsel. But it may also require other treatments. So uh, with, with that being said, I'm not going to claim to be an expert because I ain't. But there are parts here that I think the church and, our, and the, the Word is equipped to help us with that, that medicine can't. So uh, introduction to some models for treatment. And we're not, we're not going to get through all these. We're just maybe going to uh, begin this today and then hopefully finish these up next week. So there are enough approaches to addressing anxiety and depression that we could break things down almost infinitely within each discipline. But we're going to talk about four basic models uh, this week and next week, and then maybe consider some implications of each. Uh, The first will be what we'll call the psychological model, uh, the emotional model, the medical model, and then the spiritual model. I'm going to guess that the two models that probably most of us here deal with are the last two, the the medical and the the spiritual. And so we're going to look at those kind of at the end, but first we'll deal with the uh, psychological and emotional models. So uh, let's just jump briefly into the psychological model here this morning. 
what is psychology? Study of the mind. It's essentially the science of the mind and behavior. So it's the kind of connection between our mental processes and how that, how that plays itself out. So mind, behavior, can you see any connection at all to our experience of depression? Well, of course. Of course there is a connection. It's natural that it's a discipline connected to depression. But within the psychological field, uh, there are many ways of, of approaching this. Uh, one is, uh, the, f- the first is cognitive behavior therapy, the CBT. It's essentially kind of manually reprogramming your mind to demonstrate how your thinking patterns lead to anxiety. And then in order to reprogram this, you try to think more positively, and by thinking more positively, you can produce more positive emotions. Cognitive behavior therapy essentially sees depression as a bad habit, and if you retrain your mind, reprogram your mental and behavioral habits, you can address uh, anxiety and depression. So in other words, uh, depression is a product of the way you think. You give yourself new habits of thinking, and you produce different behavior. The second is uh, interpersonal therapy, or IPT. And this says, um, someone have have, have a guess as to what interpersonal therapy has to do with? Relationships, right? It's not hard, right? Interpersonal. It's kind of uh, there by definition. So it says that your experience of anxiety or depression is related to difficulties relationally and socially. In interpersonal therapy, you try to understand your relationship patterns, the, the way you view relationships, assess the roots of interpersonal problems, and then by ad- uh, assessing those, identifying those issues, you try to avoid them by spotting them before they come and then, and then counteracting them. So you, you see maybe you're having um, sort of some social, socially induced anxiety, and so you try to avoid it uh, by recognizing it even before it comes. Uh, psychotherapy is probably, it's, it's probably the most common term and maybe the most broadly the classic approach uh, that we think of. Some of you here will remember, I don't, I don't even know when it was, you know, the 70s or 80s, but the Bob Newhart show, um, which essentially, that, that's what he was. He was a psychotherapist. Kind of, it's kind of your classic, sit on the couch and tell me how you feel. Uh, it's, 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 it's that kind of approach. Or uh, in the 90s, the uh, what about Bob? Apparently Bob, you know, Bob and Bob, you know, that's, that's the connection here. But, um, and, and that's where the term baby steps comes from for a lot of us is, is that movie, What About Bob? And so in psychotherapy, you build a relationship with a therapist, and, and you, the, this therapist builds a dossier of data to understand how past experiences, how thinking patterns affect your present behavior, ex- emotion, and experience. So beyond these kind of three major categories, there are some other, other treatments that fall into this connected to psychology and depression. So positive psychology, mindfulness-based uh, cognitive therapy, and then uh, narrative therapy. And so specific disciplines are often interrelated, but they all connect to uh, our mind, our emotion, and our uh, behavior. So we've got uh, several other models here. And by the way, I'm, I'm going to, at the end, hopefully propose a model that I think is the most helpful, hopefully the most biblically informed, but I wanted to introduce this to, and, and, it, and it's likely possible uh, that, that uh, some of us have experienced different forms of these uh, treatments along the way. Well, we'll go ahead and stop there next time, and then we'll, we'll jump into uh, the emotional model next week. Uh, as we stop, any, any questions or comments based on kind of the ground we've covered today?
So if you were going to sum up the big idea of treating depression, it's what? It's a shift in target from managing pain to addressing underlying root causes, learning to trust God in the midst of pain. All right, just a reminder that in a couple of weeks, our, our final session will be a Q&A, some, some, some uh, questions that have come in, and so we'll try to address those, but you can certainly um, ask more as you have them as well. And also, I'll say that it is helpful if you have them or know what they are. If you want to let me know ahead of time, it may be more helpful in terms of the discussion, but you're certainly welcome to ask them live. And you guys have just been bowling me over with questions each week, so I don't doubt that there are going to be a lot uh, as we go along. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. God, we do thank you for Christ who experienced pain so that through him we could have life. God, I pray for us. God, I pray that you will help us like Paul rejoice in our weakness because you demonstrate the strength of Christ through us. God, I pray for those who have no hope, that they would find their hope in you. God, that even when we can't see the immediate reason for pain, that we can see your good hand at work, even in the moment if it's very difficult uh, to see your hand at work. Uh, And so, God, I pray that you will give hope through Christ uh, to those who are experiencing darkness. And, God, that you'll help us know how to, to help ourselves and also how to help others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.